Welcome to the Audit Room, the number one podcast where you can share your audit experiences, ask questions, and get expert coaching and feedback. Episodes are recorded live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Chicago Time, 12 noon New York, and 6 p.m. Berlin. So be sure to check the show notes to join our next meeting and get all your auditing questions answered. Now, here are our hosts, Trent Russell and Tracy Marquardt. This podcast is brought to you by Green Skies Analytics, the services firm that helps auditors leapfrog up the analytics maturity model. Their approach for launching audit analytics programs with a series of proven quick win analytics will guarantee the results worthy of the analytics hype. Whether your audit team needs a data strategy, methodology, governance, literacy, or anything else related to audit and analytics, visit greenskiesanalytics.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Quality Assurance Communication. If you're an internal auditor who wants to take your own or your team's communication skills and audit results to the next level, who wants to create more for yourself, your team, and your organization, no matter where you work around the globe, then check out Quality Assurance Communication at qacommunication.com. Hello, everyone. This is the Audit Room. Uh, you can join us live by connecting with Tracy and myself on LinkedIn. We post links to this thing, what, Friday through Tuesday, um, seemingly all day, <laughs> at least it seems like it. Um, so if you want to join us live, you can do that. You can ask your questions live, throw your questions in the chat, and we'll be sure to get those answered. I am your co-host and moderator, Trent Russell. I'm the founder of Green Skies Analytics, where we help launch your internal audit analytics program and data teams. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Tracy Marquardt. Thank you, Trent. So I am your audit communication specialist. Anything you need for audit communication to help your team improve their skills, up-level those skills, increase productivity, leadership, all those kinds of things, audit report writing, influencing. I'm your expert for that. And I'm super excited today to have Leah, I've got to say it right, Leah Wheatholter. On yeah. our call today. Yeah. And um, Leah is CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She's a certified fraud examiner. She's a private investigator. She's a CPA. She's an expert in finding the patterns or following the patterns to find money. And she's received numerous awards. She's got lots and lots of content for us today. And we're here to talk about tales from a forensic accountant. So, Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Leah, and I wanted to, I see the book in the background and I am making my way through it right now. It is so far, and I, I would expect it to continue to be fantastic. The stories that I've read so far are, I've been really good. And so that's kind of where I wanted to start off. One, if you could just like briefly uh, what the book is about and then, mm -hmm. and maybe it's a story I haven't gotten to yet, but one of your favorite stories, either from the book or from your personal experience uh, in doing what you do. Okay. So the book is about our data sleuth process, which is like the title says, it's using data in forensic accounting and fraud investigations. And I actually provide in several, in kind of the middle chapters, the most common types of analyses that are performed in fraud investigations and forensic accounting engagements, especially as a third party consultant. Um, and we'll talk a little bit today about how that works in more of an audit uh, team. But I, I start at the beginning, I start talking about why I had to build a process to work fraud investigations just for me personally. But then also it's just turned into something 
bigger than I ever dreamed. It was really to help me stop just living this survival of uh, this survival business and made it where I could. I mean, the goal is that it's eventually a legacy business. And so incorporating other people and building that team and processes that I can trust the process more than I can even trust myself as an expert to work these investigations. And so that's really the, the broad concept. And a lot of that can get a little tedious. So I tell a lot of stories. I've worked close to 200 cases in my career. So I had quite a few to choose from and so provided a lot of, um, stories and then um, some case studies that readers can actually work through. And then we also created a website for the book that um, if you buy the book, then you can uh, receive some free downloads that will help you through the case planning process and the analysis process as well. And then what about a, a, the story, a story from yeah. all your, what you said, 200 cases, I, I got to think there's something um, fascinating in there. So yeah, gosh, I have so many, I'll, I'll tell you one that's not in the book. Um, there was, and, and this one's really fun. I just haven't, I haven't really worked on crafting it into any type of like educational game or interactive case study or anything, but because it was, it was really complicated, but high level, the story's super interesting. There was an attorney who had several bar complaints uh, filed on him. And so the bar association hired us to kind of sort through uh, some of his billings and stuff. One of their investigators had gone through it, but then whenever they went into like his hearings to talk about whether he was going to get to keep his license, he hired a quote unquote expert, which just, just as a side note, and probably a little bit of a spoiler to the story, as this was a pattern of his, his expert, his forensic accounting expert was actually his girlfriend. And so she was going to take the stand and talk about how, no, he didn't steal all of his clients' money. And so when that happened, the Bar Association gave us a call and asked that I look at this billing information and see if I could, uh, you know, and review her report and then also testify at these hearings. So I agreed to, and um, this guy was kind of a one, two man shop, uh, maybe had a paralegal but he would work personal injury cases primarily. And, uh, but he did take retainers and then he would also take fees. Um, and he would do like back child support cases was kind of his other niche, I guess. And uh, he, as he was collecting money, he would not remit all the payments to several of his clients. And so we were looking at three different clients. The information on this, the data on this, what was reliable, what wasn't. I mean, it, it was a headache. And one day I'm going to turn this into a case study. I've just got to figure out how do you present something that was so messy, you know? Um, but anyway, one of my favorite parts of this case is that one of the individuals that he represented, he also dated her, which is an ethical issue in and of itself. But she um, had a lot of addiction issues and had to be in the hospital for some addiction issues. And so he saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of the situation. He starts dating her. She's in a car accident. So he says, hey, you know, I can, you know, sue the insurance company for you and get this. And anyway, obviously, he did not give her all of the money. Plus, she wasn't really cognizant anyway. But later she realized what happened, especially after he broke up with her. And so she realized what happened. So they file lawsuits just locally at the local county level. And so I pulled those to kind of 
understand more of the story because it was, like I said, over and over, it's extremely messy. And so I start looking at this and um, his claims, his countersuit against her was that she was a gold digger and that he was providing all of these resources for her. And so he just needed to like pay himself back for all of this. Um, But my favorite part of that case was actually that he, I mean, there were lots of interesting things and related to numbers and how he was doing it. But in this lawsuit, he actually defined for the judge what a gold digger was. (laughs) What was it? What was what's the how do you is that on like urban dictionary like where do you where do you pull yeah. that from yeah he quoted urban dictionary <laughs> so um but it's just hilarious because throughout and it was like a 50 page filing and so he's uh telling the judge so anyway i ended up testifying on this case uh not in the case where he called her a gold digger but the bar association hearing and i testified on that and just was able to show how much he had stolen Um, And he was trying to represent that he was very wealthy and he didn't need all this piddly money. And so I was able to show that, you know, where his funds were coming from and how he was paying for expenses and what the sources of those expenses were. And at the end of the day, which this is really difficult to have happen and and not that it was my goal, but he ended up losing his license. They didn't just find him or, you know, do something else. They actually um, took away his license altogether. It was really egregious. I think that might be the uh, the first time, like, as evidence that a Kanye West song was submitted. Like, what is a gold digger? Well, let me let Kanye explain it, and then we'll just let it go from there. <laughs> right. Um, so you're talking about those hearings, though, and I know you have to do that, like, testify, and I'm, I might even be using the wrong uh, language here. Legal stuff is probably some of my least favorite. Definitely my least favorite class that I ever took was business law. Um but I know in doing that, like I'm curious and I'm, I'm sure Tracy is too. I got to imagine the way you communicate when you are testifying or dealing with lawyers is significantly different than with probably anybody else. So how did you become effective at communicating with that type of person or those types of people in, in that profession? A trial and error yeah. uh, is really the answer. Um, I, I actually, my dad growing up, I've always liked details. And so growing up, I would be telling a story and my dad would say Reader's Digest version, Leah. And so that kind of forced me to start noticing in different audiences, have I lost them? Like, are they giving me that look from my dad? Man, it'd be real nice if she'd just cut this off. But so a lot of trial and error and really just meeting one-on-one with attorneys to say, here's what I'm finding. And then they would say, well, why is that important? Um, Or I could tell we were not connecting. And so then now just as part of our process, as we're, this actually happened just a couple of weeks ago, I was reviewing what we call our finding summary before it went to a client. And I, my notes back to the analyst before I would let it go out was, these are all great findings in the journal entries, but why does the client care? And so then once he had to go back and kind of, you know, work on that, came back and he had brilliant findings like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even think about the client caring about this. I mean, it was so great. But just having that extra somebody coming in and saying, "Okay, why do they care and explain it from that perspective? Um, And then one time I was testifying in a federal bank fraud case. And the attorney on that case was not a business person. She was not a white call. She did not normally do white collar defense. And I was on the defense team 
And I remember it was super late. I was, this was in another state and we're working late into the night. And she was pretty sure I was going to go on the next day to testify. And I came down and I said, well, this is what I had in mind. And I have all these charts and tables and stuff that we, it, those were simple. And she said, uh, yeah, you've already lost me. Go back, create a story. And so while my stories, if you're a fan of watching bull on CBS, it, they're not that crazy, <laughs> not that, um, I don't know. One time they had an analogy for like an apple pie. Okay. Mine don't go like that far to explain anything, but I just started crafting the order of what I wanted to talk about in a story that made sense. And I think one of the simplest ways, especially if someone, maybe that whole idea of creating a story feels too creative or too out of the box, just taking the facts and putting it into a timeline. We can understand a timeline. Most people can understand a timeline. So instead of maybe grouping it, while I might group it by type of finding in my report, in talking about it to a jury, and this was a jury trial, I needed to talk about it in a logical, this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened. So telling that story within the framework of a timeline helped simplify that message. I think that's brilliant because you have so much learning that you've been able to apply and to teach your team to do that. Um, you, you, you see complexities and context and connections maybe where some other people don't, but you've recognized where some people don't actually need as much of all that information. And so you, you've been able to focus and understanding or being able to explain why it's important is also so critical. There's like at least five messages in there and we don't have time to go through them all, but if you listen to the replay, I would definitely go back and listen to that piece because there's tons of learning for your communication, no matter who you're communicating with, right? And telling that story in a way your audience is going to connect with, you have a different audience, but that's why we look at audience. I mean, that's brilliant. Thanks. Yeah. And I like the, the timeline piece as far as like we talk about data visuals all the time. You can use a timeline as a data visual to show that also. Um, so I, I really like that. The other thing that you said was, um, in talking about, they were looking at the journal entries and you said you, you came to your analyst and said, why should they care about that? And that made me think of kind of like in the audit world, a question that I always ask whenever there's a finding is what's the risk, what's the risk, what's the risk. Um, and so I'm trying to segue into the, the audit, uh, folks that are listening, um, within the, the data sleuth process. Is there, could, could internal audit apply that as like a preventative fraud framework within their organization also? Yes. And I think that they should. Um, and there is a section of the book that's talking about using data sleuth as preventative. Um, but so in an investigation, uh, we do a risk-based analysis which really is just looking at the opportunities, right? Which is what internal audit is often looking at. So what's the risk somebody would steal? We have to look at the opportunities somebody would have to steal. And one of the ways we look at this in an investigation, but then also I think as part of an audit process is to identify how does money come into the organization? What are all of those ways that money comes into the organization? And then what are all the ways that money is spent or that it leaves an organization? And then for each of those ways, identify who touches it and what are the opportunities. And based on this opportunity, how would I know that money was being stolen? And so by doing this process, we identify, okay, so in the investigation world, by using this type of analysis, 
will be talking to a client and they'll say, I've found where this individual is stealing from payroll, stealing from me through payroll. And then their imagination kind of gets the better of them. Right. And they're like, but they also could be stealing this way. And they also could be stealing this way. And then they want you to investigate everything until, you know, they have to start paying their bill. Mm -hmm. So we need to help them prioritize that. So that's where we use this risk-based analysis to say, okay, based on, based on what this individual had access to, they didn't even have a credit card. They didn't pay that bill. They didn't, you know, so we identify what's the risk of, and what's their opportunity to steal funds to help create that priority. So within the audit framework, you're looking at the same thing, but whenever it's incorporated as more of a preventative measure and understanding how does money come in? How does money leave the organization? What are the opportunities here? What, what are the risks of fraud? Then I need to ask myself, if someone was to take advantage of this opportunity, how would they do it? And what are the tests that would find it? And so what we've discovered, because we'll get hired to do an investigation of something, and we will discover, especially in large organizations that are the size that could have an internal audit team, that they don't actually, they haven't thought about their audits in this context. And so they actually don't even have the data available to identify if these opportunities were taken, if somebody took advantage of the opportunity and decided to steal money. And a lot of times it's just that IT doesn't know that they need that data. And so the switch hasn't been turned on. And so thinking of it this way should identify those holes that, oh yeah, you're right. Someone could steal money through this avenue through purchasing, but we can't, we don't have any logs or anything that's available to us that we can pull to even check it to see if this is happening already. So that's what, that's how we use the data sleuth process in an investigation, but how it could also be adapted in an internal audit or audit context. And what's the, I've asked you this question before, but I think it's important. So I want you to answer it again. Okay. When is the right time? If you're in internal audit, you come across fraud. When is the right time to call someone like yourself with your background and what you do? Um, I would say whenever you suspect fraud. And, Just, and why? And, and, and Cause I know you've told me this before, but like what's different about what you do versus what an internal audit team might do if, if there's suspicion of fraud. Well, our goals are a little different. Um, so the goals of most of our clients are to identify the loss that someone has incurred because someone took an opportunity that they shouldn't have, uh, took advantage of an opportunity to steal money. So there's going to be some sort of loss that needs to be calculated. The company needs to know that. They also need to, the company is going to need to decide, do we put this person on administrative leave? Um are we going to, going to press charges? Does this individual have assets where we want to file some sort of civil lawsuit? And having that work performed by a third party is advantageous, especially if there's going to be an insurance claim that's filed or if there's a civil lawsuit or even criminal. But having someone that this is, this is all I do all the time, this is all my team does all the time. And so we can help get to those I call them in the book recovery avenues, but I can get to those recovery avenues and I know what data I need. I know what, what do you have at the company level that will help a prosecutor reach their burden of beyond a reasonable doubt. And so that's what we're, that's what we're looking for. An expert like us, or um, I see Tracy Conan on the call. Like when this is all we do, we know what hurdles are going to need to be 
um, conquered, you know, by the end of this engagement to get to those goals of the organization. Perfect. And then uh, I guess selfishly, my, my question being around data, um, I know I wrote uh, something on your blog about using Z-score to identify outliers um, with, with really well, just about any data set, but I'm, I'm curious, are there like go-to analytics that you guys run pretty consistently? Yes. So um, as part of our process, the, the majority of information we're looking at, unless it's a large organization, and I want to distinguish between this. Whenever I was writing um, the book, I had several colleagues read different chapters based on their experience. And so I know Trent, you know, Jamie Shine from Quick Trip. Mm -hmm. So I had Jamie read this one chapter about how forensic accounting engagements aren't uh, audits. And so, and I wanted her to tell me, you know, is this going to be offensive? Am I stepping on toes? Yeah. Like, am I being, you know, let's get that right. And one thing that we realized in going through that review process was that she didn't realize that the majority of my work comes from organizations that does, that do not have internal audit departments and that internal audit departments are really not as common or it's not a large percentage of business that actually has an internal audit department. So we were reworked the chapter so that we were <laughs> explaining this a little better. But so, and I say that because the types of data we're looking at are a little different. And so, because so often internal audit is, you're looking at the internal controls of an organization, which would then either cause your data to be more reliable, less reliable based on, on that. So you can actually look at system exports and reports. The majority of the cases we work, and by majority, I mean like 96% or something very high. I can't rely on the data that anyone has prepared mm. because of lack of internal controls and things like that. So th there's really three main data sources that we use in fraud investigations, bank statements, credit card statements, payroll reports. Those are the top three. We use the system exports to create context. So when we're running our analytics, we're running our analytics on bank statements, credit card statements, or payroll reports. And the we do use Z-score, thanks to Trent, um, our data analytics manager, made sure we had a macro that would incorporate Z-score, but we're also looking for any large individual payments. We're looking for anything that ends in like a multiple of a hundred or a thousand, because most people, if they're going to steal money, they're going to steal money in some even dollar amount. So we make sure we run that. Um, and so those are the types we use. What are the common, uh, what are the common ways people steal money? We look at uh, types of payments made in a month. So like if we're working divorce or even embezzlement, we're looking at, you know, how many utility bills should be paid? How many credit card bills should be paid? One of my cases to talk about in that context is uh, there was a bookkeeper who there were four partners in this business. They had a bookkeeper. They all had credit cards with like, let's say Chase. So there were four partners that had credit cards with Chase. Bookkeeper took out a fifth. And so if you looked at the bank statement, you're just going to see that Chase was paid. But because there were four payments being, at least four payments being made, nope, it never raised a flag. So if they had looked at how many Chase payments are we paying, why are we paying five, mm -hmm. then that is actually how they would have discovered it. It's not how they discovered it because they were not doing data analytics. But those are the types of things that we're looking for. And we create, we normally have the ones I've described, those are the most common analyses and um, analytics that we perform on fraud investigations. There's not a whole lot 
because once we've captured, once we start seeing the same results over and over, we've typically captured the majority of the loss. Yeah. Perfect. Fascinating. Uh, I did have, uh, we're running up against time a little bit, but I did have uh, one more question for you. I know there's a lot of case studies, right, throughout the book. And is there a favorite one, uh, like a favorite case study that you could share also? Hmm. I do. Uh, so one of the cases that I list at the back of the book or yeah, towards the back of the book um, is about a partnership dispute. And we work lots of partnership disputes, but this guy was a general manager of all of these guys decided they were in oil and gas. I'm in Oklahoma. So lots of oil and gas, they're in oil and gas. They decide that they're going to create this, um, kind of equipment servicing company. And, uh, this one guy, they needed him to be their CFO and to run the thing because they've got all these other businesses, but he didn't have any money to actually invest in the business. So he was going to be sweat equity. They were going to pay him every month. And then over time, when they got their investment back, he would get a percentage um, he was running everything. So, you know, spoiler, he stole lots of money. But one of my favorite things about this case was that with this stolen money, he actually purchased a house in the Dominican Republic. So there was this wire transfer that went to the Dominican. And that's just like one of my favorite things to find. I don't know why, but just purchasing some large asset just makes me really happy. But partnership disputes are always interesting. And I find them just from a strategy perspective, they're really fun for me because it is typically the person who controls the money, but more often it's the individual that has sweat equity. I think there's some, I was in a mediation last week where um, the sweat equity partners had stolen almost a million dollars. So there's like this weird, I'm working so hard and all this guy is doing is pumping in the money. And so it helps with that rationalization piece of the fraud triangle, but negotiating to get those shares back to help the investor and stuff. I just find those really, really interesting. That's a great story. I want to ask one quick question before we go, Trent, if I can. Ilya, can you tell us really briefly how you went from that little girl telling her dad stories where he's like, you know, condense it down to doing what you're doing? don't know that I ever really stopped to think about it other than um, it was just necessary. We've been kind of talking about this as a team lately that, I mean, I started this business at 26 years old and I had to pay bills. And so I just had to make things work. And so I think I've just had to, over the last 12 years, just look out what am I not great at and then study and learn how can I make this better and watch reactions and get feedback and go through that whole process to then improve um, the communication or the effectiveness of it. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've been on that a little bit. A few uh, few folks have. Um, Larry Harrington, I think this is like the third time we've, we've referenced him since he's been on, but he was talking about in the context of like, where do you want to be career-wise in three, five years? see what skill set you need for to have that in three years and basically do a gap assessment and go, all right, what do I need to work on now to get to where I want to be in three years? And so I don't know, it's, I guess, Tracy, it's come, come somewhat of a tradition to refer back to Larry, Larry's conversation. <laughs> it has, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a great story. And yeah. I think it's something that each of us can do is say, um, you know, where do we want to be and, and what are the gaps? And I know, I think it was Matthew McConaughey and they were like, they asked him who his, role model was 
And he said, me in 10 years. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that kind of thinking that helps you grow no matter what field you're in. All right, well, uh, this is the audit room. We are live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Um, I am your co-host and moderator, Trent Russell. I will throw it to Tracy. And then, uh, Leah, if you could, I know we've hit on like a few of the things that you have going on, uh, but I also know you have a podcast yourself. Uh, you also have the investigation game, and I'm sure there's something else that I'm forgetting along with the book. So, um after Tracy, then if you could, please tell us away. everything else. And we'll be sure to include, we're going to be pretty link heavy, I think, in the show notes on this one, because Leah has so much to offer, but uh, we'll be sure to include all that good stuff in the show awesome. notes. All right. Well, from my side, I want to thank everyone for being here. Please do make sure you're connected to Trent and Leah and I on LinkedIn. We'd love to do that because we all have so much to offer for you. And I myself have serious business schemes which is gamified training. And we have some test licenses available in May. I think we have about four, four options for you. So this is where you have different levels of learning and it's interactive and it's DIY, it's on your own. If somebody wants to try that out, because I know we've got some new folks on the line today. If you want to try that out, reach out to me by DM on LinkedIn and we'll get you a test license that's valid for May. And Leah, personally, thank you so much. It's been really educational. I'd love to hear more and I'm looking forward to the next time. And you get to close us out. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So my most recent uh, publication and first publication really is Data Sleuth Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations. It's available on Amazon or anywhere else you buy books. I do host the Investigation Game podcast where I interview professionals like Trent. Trent has been on the show. Um, so I in in interview investigators and those who are solving problems and being modern day Sherlock Holmes on the Investigation Game podcast. We do have the Investigation Game, which is also gamified training, but it's for fraud investigations. We have an actual game, but we also have um, created interactive case studies for CPE. So both are CPE NASBA approved. Uh, I think those are the majority of the things. Um, but if you're ever in Tulsa, we are opening an escape room called Novel Mysteries, and that will be open in two weeks. It's really cool. It's really fun. So if you're in Tulsa, you should totally reach out. I would love to host you. That's amazing. Thanks so much. Thanks.